news, the beta reader matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March, with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April Fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live, cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar, and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A agent. I hope to see you there. there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. We'll be kicking off today's episode with our usual Books with Hooks segment, after which we'll go to today's guest. Hi everyone, welcome to another Books with Hooks. Today we're doing something different. Carly and Cece will each look at one of the Books with Hooks submissions, which they will critique. And then we're going to have something new. So we had Sim Carter, one of our listeners, reach out and ask if it was possible for Carly and Cece to read one of the query letters they've gotten that they ended up signing so that you could all hear what a successful pitch sounds like instead of us just giving you the ones from our listeners. And we thought that was a really good idea. So we'll first begin with the books with hooks, and then we will go to those queries. Before we move on, I just want to say for any of you who live out near Boston, I hope hope you'll join us on the 3rd of November for an annual fundraiser called Celebrate Our Library in support of the Worcester Public Library and its important services and programs. I'm going to be part of the lineup along with Anne Leary, Jacqueline Mitchard and John Searles. So please join us for that with Stephanie Pasha as moderator. Stephanie's also a listener of the podcast. Hi Stephanie, I can't wait for that event. So please visit WPLfoundation.org for more information and to register for that. Right, diving in, Carly, will you kick us off with the first query letter? 
Dear Carly, since I discovered the Shit No One Tells You About Writing podcast in a writing workshop, I've listened to your entire archive. Redacted is a 90,000-word upmarket fiction written in a third-person limited POV, centering on Haggett, an Orthodox Jewish seamstress. I'm sending this to you because your manuscript wishlist mentioned coming-of-age stories for adults. At its heart, this is Haggett's coming-out and coming-of-age story. Haggett knows that a good life must fit a strict pattern, birth, bar mitzvah college, and then marriage and children. But how's a college dropout supposed to find her match when she's too fat, too old at 30, too broke, too slutty, and too queer? As marriage feels less likely, Haggett turns to casual sex, YouTube celebrity, and the historical reenactment to fill the void. This novel has the authentic religious angst of Amy Gottlieb's The Beautiful Possible and Naomi Alderman's Disobedience, but with a happy queer ending. This novel will also appear to viewers of Netflix's Unorthodox. When a casual hookup with Yakov, a rabbinical student, turns serious and her modest fashion YouTube channel goes viral, Haggett begins to hope that she might find both faith and belonging in the Orthodox world after all. That is until her sister's wedding, where she meets Ray, a queer atheist academic. Ray is her new sister-in-law and 20 years her senior. Decades ago, Ray left Orthodox Judaism and the closet. She is everything Haggett isn't supposed to want. After a failed hookup, Haggett expects never to see her again. However, when Haggett lands a coveted sewing apprenticeship at Colonial Williamsburg, where Ray just happens to teach at the local university, Ray offers Haggett a room for rent in her house. Away from the watchful eyes of her family and close-knit community, Haggett dives into her temporary apprenticeship and her temporary hookup with Ray. Meanwhile, she continues to date Yaakov and build on her platform as an Orthodox YouTube influencer. Haggett's double life crashes down when she becomes pregnant due to her not-so-proper courtship with Yaakov. There are no unmarried mothers in the Orthodox world, certainly none that are hooking up with both their rabbinical student boyfriend and their secret atheist girlfriend, who they might accidentally love. If Chaim Podak was a queer, fat woman in 2022, this is the novel he might have written. There are almost no stories of queer women who engage in authentic religious exploration and get to remain religious and have happy queer endings. As a queer person of faith, I am particularly well-suited to tell these stories. I'm currently attending Grub Street's novel, Immersive for Queer Writers. Also, I completed writing workshop at Catapult, Ritual Well, and Bethida Writing Center. I teach creative writing to high school students whose authentic styles and voices enrich and inspire me every semester. I live in Washington, D.C. with my three daughters, husband, and a frisky rescue lab. Best, Anna. Wonderful, Carly. Wow, that sounds super intriguing, but also incredibly wordy. So um, I'm wanting to see what kind of magic you can work here. So we had a request on our last Q&A listeners wanted to know how long every query was. So I just did a quick little scroll here. And it looks like this one is without the Dear Carly and the Best Anna. We're at 486 words, right? So you can tell that's a little bit longer. We're usually hoping usually to get around 300 ideally. So just an example for you guys. Okay, so now I'm going to get into the, the meat of this one. Okay, so I found it a little bit tough to do the redacted title, to be honest with you. A title does so much to kind of explain and explore and kind of position how a writer thinks about their book. So I would have really loved to know what the title, maybe it's just because they haven't figured it out yet. I don't know. They don't want to say it. That's totally fine. But I was just like, oh, I don't know. I somehow just not having the title was a little bit like a huh to me. I don't think we need the third person limited POV little bit there at the top. I don't think we need that. And I think really this first paragraph is is a little bit 
chunky. And so I think what I really want is to just be a little bit more clear with the hook here. So you have centering on Haggett, an Orthodox Jewish seamstress, and they just have a period. So it could just be like an Orthodox Jewish seamstress who finds herself and then like roll right into the hook. And that way you can just like get right into it. Because I think what the interesting part here is, is this whole like is kind of the middle bit here, right? The like she knows a good life must fit the strict pattern, right? That part, keep that. I would get rid of the coming out and coming of age story because you get to the queer bit in a few lines. So I think that's totally fine there. And so a kind of a recurring theme of this query letter was there was a lot of spelling errors. And you guys always ask me, Carly, do you just like, you know, just reject everything? You know, if it has a if it has a spelling error, this is a very common thing you ask me. So this is a prime example of this is a very, very interesting book, very interesting plot. It, this has a lot of spelling errors. This really felt like a first draft query letter, but I don't reject things based on the spelling errors. What it does is just giving me a a kind of a heightened sense of awareness to be like, is this something I need to keep an eye on? Is this going to develop into a yellow flag or red flag? Right now, it's just kind of like, "Mm, maybe they just sent me the first draft. So that's kind of just so you guys know, that's kind of the way that I'm thinking about it here. Within the first paragraph, again, I'm not like a copy editor here, but in the first paragraph, I'm noticing like three errors. So that's quite a bit for a query letter. But it's this is so interesting, right? Like, I don't know, I, I can't get over how utterly fascinating this actual pitch is. And I'll I'll talk a little bit more about the actual book, obviously, when we get to the pages. But in terms of a query letter critique, one thing I would suggest changing is there's a line in the third paragraph that says, where Ray just happens to teach at a local university. That sounds very coincidental. It feels very much like you're trying to get these two people together. So I would just try to smooth that out so it doesn't sound like it's very obvious that as the writer, you're trying to like get these two people in the same in the same room together. And then I caught some more kind of spelling errors in the middle and then one on the in the author bio as well. So those are my notes. The author will see those obviously when when I send them over. But in terms of is this going to hook me? Yeah, it's a really interesting story. There's so much that's new and innovative and intriguing and real plot that's happening. So so yeah, I mean, ultimately, I think it did its job. Thank you, Carly. I think with regards to the redacted title, what I'm getting a sense of is that many of our listeners are nervous that their titles might be stolen, um, especially if they come up with a really, really good one and someone else might hear it, especially if the book's not published yet or out on submission yet. So for our listeners, perhaps what you might want to do is include the title in the letter to Carly and Cece, and then just put in brackets, could you please redact it when reading it out on the podcast? That at least will give them a sense of that title. And then in terms of those spelling errors, man, I feel your pain. I think so many authors write these damn query letters so fast because they just bloody will hate them and they just write them. And I'm like, I'm going to send this damn thing out and get it off my desk right now. So I think perhaps that's just what happened there. Okay, Carly, what was in those opening pages and what was your take on them? I just want to give readers a minute. If there are children in your environment, if there are some minors, there is sexual content coming up. So this is your opportunity to put in your headphones or just hit pause. And I'll, I'll take a beat so, so you can do that before I dive right into it. Okay, so we're starting with our main character who you've met, Haggett. So she is talking about uh, a mikvah, which is when she is going to go into a natural pool of water, which is where you bathe for restoration, kind of a symbol of ritual purity. So she says that she's going to do this mikvah in her grandmother's soaking tub and kind of pretend that it's a mikvah. So we meet our character. She's like just robed. She's hopping into the bathtub. And she kind of explains a little bit about what happens with the mikvah. It's kind of just like your body touching the water and kind of all this purity content. 
then she kind of wants to kind of push God out of her head. And then she decides, she's like, instead of doing that, I think I'm going to masturbate instead. So she kind of does that. And then she's thinking about her boyfriend who we've met in the query letter. And she's thinking about like, hmm, I want to set up on a date with him. So she's like texting him, sets up a date. And then she kind of, we get out of that bath scene. And then the next day we have Haggett and Yakov. They are meeting at a kosher dairy restaurant on the Upper West Side, having their date. She's talking about what she's wearing. We understand from the way that the material is written that she's fat, which obviously was told us to the query letter. So she's talking about that she wants to crawl under the table and then undo his pants. But then she's like, I don't think I'm going to fit. So we have like some humor there, physical comedy. And we're just learning about her sexuality and desires and yearning. And that's kind of where we end our pages. Wonderful. Thank you. As someone who in chapter two of her latest novel had an 80-year-old character masturbating, I must warn you there were a ton of one-star reviews because of that, but maybe that's just pure ageism. Maybe because your character's younger, people won't mind. Right. Okay, Carly, what was your take? (laughs) So this, again, this... I have absolutely no judgment. I just wanted to give our listeners a little moment to embrace themselves. But so what I really like about when characters explore their sexuality is it's like, obviously, that's what's happening physically. And that's what's happening in the scene. But it's it's about so much more, right? It's about desire. It's about yearning. It's about women taking control of their own thoughts and pleasure. And you know what I mean? Like it's and I think that's really what this what this is about. And I think that it does really I think it does do that really well. There's so many really funny lines in this as well. Dipping in this pretend mikvah was like saying a braca on a bacon sandwich. And yet there she was, bacon sandwich in hand, naked before God, wanting to feel pure and perfect in her imperfectly fat body. So there's a real like understanding of our character and who she is. And and I think this like the masturbation in the bath scene is just like there's just such an outpouring of all of this energy, right? And she doesn't know where to put it. And I think that's just expressed really, really well in this scene. The only thing I will say kind of in this in this bath scene is that there's so much of this that is so internal, right? Because we're learning about all of her thoughts, right? About like how she feels about God and her body and her sexuality and everything like that. But it's a little bit passive because it's just like she's just in the bath. You know what I mean? I would I think it'd be good if it was like more we experienced a bit more of the actual disrobing or there was like a knock on the door or there's something like external that's like happening. Like there's a scene happening instead of it's just like her exploring all of her internal thoughts. Because what ends up happening is that there isn't any dialogue either in the date scene. So then that's like five pages of only internal thoughts and we're moving just from one one setting which is like the bathtub to the second scene which is already sitting in the booth on the date right these are very passively like stagnant physical moments and all of this activity all of this yearning and desire all this happening in her head which just feels maybe it's very intentional but it feels like so contained and it just feels like the story wants to burst out of that it doesn't really feel i don't know i'm just not feeling like that is exactly the best way to fully embody the whole scene there's just so many really funny lines there's another funny line like if she stopped having sex would god help her lose weight i'm like it's just funny it's super funny yeah and i think i think this character just has so much wanting and so much yearning one thing i wasn't really sure about was how much of this she actually believes in terms of the religious content because there is quite a bit of like she knows what is expected of her from her religion and yet she's not like rebucking against it internally And yet she's doing things physically that she knows that she shouldn't be doing, such as dating somebody and having sex out of marriage and things like that. So I don't know how much self-awareness this character has. And that's kind of what I'm most interested in. We might kind of, this is only five pages, so we might kind of grow into knowing this. But I want to know how much of this she actually believes. 
and, and what exactly that means to her. But yeah, she has such a desire for life. And yet she doesn't really know how to ask for what she wants because they also she talks about kind of when she's being intimate with Yakov. And it's she's like, she's like, she's like, I'm always going down on him and he's not going down on me. But then she goes, but then again, she never asked, you know, and, and so I think this character has so much to figure out about what they what they truly want. And it's just a hunger for life is the real symbolism here. But ultimately, I think we need some dialogue. And we really just need to be a teensy bit less internal and potentially more self aware. But again, we, we could be building into that. And I might be getting ahead of myself. But this is really interesting. Wonderful, Carly. Thank you. And that bodes really well for character development. Because remember, who your character is at the beginning of the novel needs to be very different to who they end up being later on. So uh, look forward to reading about this character coming into their own. Okay, Cece, will you take us away with the second query letter? I will, but before I'll say, with the exception of being a sex freak, because Jezebel is still a sex freak at the end of your novel. Just wanted to say that. Okay. (laughs) Dear Cece, Carly, and Bianca, first and foremost, thank you for your collective generosity in assisting writers via the shit no one tells you about writing and social media. I'd like to send a particular shout out to Bianca for connecting me with my critique group. These brilliant writers have helped me overhaul my manuscript over the last year. Now I'd be honored to receive your feedback for my upmarket fiction, The Days Between, a multi-POV upmarket suspense novel, which explores the devastating consequences that parents' long-buried secrets can have on their grown children. Complete at 93,000 words, it combines the escalating familial tension of little fires everywhere with the dual timeline reveal style of the most fun we ever had. 40-year-old investment banker Andrew Williams has been offered an amazing promotion. His wife, Amy, is a respected surgeon, and they've moved to Delray Beach, an exclusive Florida suburb. But behind his perfect facade, Andrew is crumbling. Amy's increasing desperation at her inability to get pregnant is slowly driving them apart, and Andrew's anxiety is at an all-time high. His early morning jogs are his only solace, until one day he crashes into someone on the beach, a young man who looks exactly like Andrew. Stunned, Andrew tracks down his college girlfriend, Catherine, who had abruptly cut off contact with him 20 years prior, and learns the truth. He has a 19-year-old son named Max. Unable to tell Amy, Andrew covertly meets with Catherine and finds himself quickly consumed with the life and family they could have had. But Catherine has secrets of her own, including the real reason she left Andrew in college and why she never told him he had a son. As the hidden truths of long ago emerge, Max turns to drugs and spirals into addiction, and soon Andrew must decide whether it's worth shattering his own life and marriage by intervening to help Max until the expanding impacts of Andrew's and Catherine's decisions become deadly. I'm an intern at Redacted Literary Agency, a finance manager, and member of the Let's Cross the Finish Line critique group. My essay yesterday was published in Heroics by Regal House Publishing. My fiction stories, The Pause and The Dreamers, were published by Monoth Books and Zoetic Press, respectively. My hashtag Bookstagram account has 10,000 followers. I'm currently working on three more novels, and when I'm not writing, I'm busy ensuring my rescue schnauzer is living his best life in the Colorado outdoors. Sincerely, Redacted. Awesome, Cece. Thank you. Wow. Two very compelling submissions today. Okay, what was your take on that? 
So compelling. I agree. I do have notes. So first of all, hooray for critique groups. They are the best. And it tells me that you understand the hard work that goes into writing a novel. So excellent way of sneaking that in if it was strategic. And if it wasn't, just so you know, there were added benefits to it. I love your comps. I love little fires everywhere. And I love the most fun we ever had. I will say that in my opinion, they're not suspense novels. The TV show, Little Fires Everywhere, became suspense, but not the book, in my opinion. And so you're saying upmarket fiction, and then you're also saying upmarket suspense novel, right? So I would try to find a way to only say this once, and also to be sure if your novel's suspense, because I'm, I'm thinking it's not based on the comps and the plot paragraph and the pages, but we will get to that. So yes, I do want to say that, you know, the comps are not suspense. Just, just think about that. In terms of the plot paragraph, when he meets the young man who looks exactly like him. I would just retweak that because I had to read it twice. My brain was like doppelganger, science fiction stuff, you know, like, I don't know. Um, Because I know you said young man, but to me, 40 is young. So I would say, you know, like a teenager who looks exactly like him because that, like that would make more sense or a younger version of himself, or I would just tweak it is what I'm saying. Also, is the novel dual POV? Because there's a line that says, but Catherine has secrets of her own. If it is, I think she needs her own paragraph. If she's not, then ignore this. Maybe it's just me. I'm not super clear on how telling his wife about Max would shatter his life and marriage. I understand that, of course, it would be a huge, huge, huge reveal, but he didn't do anything wrong. He didn't cheat on his wife. He didn't know the child existed. And I know that they're struggling with infertility. So of course it would devastate her to find out that he already has a son. But at the same time, we're dealing with a kid who's like suffering, like he's going into like spiraling into addiction. So I'm just having trouble understanding, like, why can't he just tell his wife, you know, like it doesn't add up based on the plot paragraph, the line until the expanding impacts of Andrew's and Catherine's decisions become deadly, that read suspensey to me. So Perhaps flesh that out if your novel really is suspense or keep it and then just it'll just have a hint of suspense, but change the characterization in the opening paragraph. And I also love the author paragraph. I love the the rescue schnauzer mentioned. Thank you for sharing that. And just to wrap it up, I did a quick word count and this is 400 words long. Okay, Cece, thank you. All right. What was in those opening pages? So Andrew, our protagonist, is running along the beach. He's thinking about the promotion he got at work. He hasn't accepted it yet, but he knows that he has to have that conversation soon. We don't know whether he'll say yes or not, but it's been keeping him up at night. So he sees two boys ahead. One says the other's name, and that name is Moretti. And that name sends him into a memory of Catherine, Catherine Moretti, his college girlfriend. And then he thinks to himself, there are dozens of Morettis, although this is Kat's hometown. He thinks back to them, him and his wife buying the house, how he didn't want the house because Kat, you know, this was Kat's hometown. And he thinks of the fight he had with his wife recently and how they're not connected and how they have an empty room in their house that they weren't able to to fill. And again, he tells himself the surfer has no relation to Catherine. He just tells himself that. Then he collides with the boy, sees how the boy is identical to him and has a very internal shocking reaction. Yeah, that's what happens. Great. Okay. So what was your take on those pages? Were they doing everything you need the opening pages to do? Okay. I want to say that the writing is so polished and I am so appreciative of how the writer clearly took the time to just pick strong verbs, like just really, really good sentence structure. Like I can tell the work that it went into this and I know it's a lot of work. So thank you. I see it. I appreciate it. 
My big picture note is at the heart of my mission, I think, as an agent who also teaches courses. And that is, I want us to take back the word manipulation when it comes to storytelling. Here's the problem. The protagonist is thinking, oh, Moretti, Moretti like Catherine. Oh, but he's not related to Catherine. And then he runs into the boy. And of course, the boy is Catherine's son. So that is a huge tension leak because the surprise was anticipated by the protagonist. The protagonist must experience surprise in the first chapter if you want there to be tension, okay? However, however, the surprise can't be anticipated because if it is, then it's not surprise for the reader, even if it is for the protagonist. Remember that you're supposed to be leveraging the reader's brain, not just the protagonist's brain. So I would remove all this nonsense of him thinking, oh, could it be? No, no, no. He has to be surprised by this boy. One thought, since they are struggling with infertility, you know, he could be thinking about something completely different, maybe even interacting with someone. I don't know if that's possible at all, but just in a completely different headspace, a juicy, intriguing headspace, mind you. And when he collides with the boy, he might think to himself, oh my gosh, I am so, I'm spiraling so hard with the fact that we can't have a baby that now perfect strangers are starting to look like me. I once had a person share with me that they started hearing babies cry because they want to get pregnant so badly. Like, and they were like doubting their own mind. So maybe that could be, and then the surprise would actually come through. But this whole, like he anticipates the thing that happens. Maybe it's a matter of taste. Maybe it's just me. I am completely against it. So I strongly, strongly, strongly recommend changing this specific aspect. And it is a big change in the sense of like, his awareness has to change in the opening paragraph, but it's very doable in my opinion. And it'll just make your manuscript so much stronger. It's something I talk about in my writing tension class. You, you must leverage surprise. And so your reader must be thinking, oh, this one thing is going to happen. And then this other thing actually happens, which in hindsight makes perfect sense, but the reader could not see coming because it's a puzzle. So yes, I, I, that is my big picture note. My second big picture note is tone. The tone is very interiority, family, feelings, emotion, so well written. I love these types of novels. So by no in no way am I saying you should change the tone, but it's not a suspense kind of tone. So again, it is compatible with your comps, the most fun we ever had, the book Little Fires Everywhere. It's just not suspense So I would take that to heart when you're revising the query letter. I would also start with proper interiority and not with narration, meaning I would ground it in his perspective and make it very, very biased, very partial, because the more partial something is, the more it's interiority. And I think that just makes us connect with character more. I would like to have a hint of his emotionality when he's thinking about the promotion, just so I have a clue about why it's so hard, because it seems like an obvious thing. I have theories, but I wish I had more specific theories. And there's a very small typo that I caught. I highlighted it for you. It's truly not a big deal. Yeah, I think I think those are all my notes. Wonderful, Cece. Thank you. All right, now we're going to go to the second part of today's Books with Hooks, and we will kick it off with Carly reading us a query letter that she got and that she ended up representing, and then taking us through what worked for her, what hooked her, etc. Carly? All right, so I will um, preface this, and you'll see it in the actual um, query letter, but this author pitched me at a writer's conference virtual event. So this is one of those kind of like speed dating things. And then they later followed up with this query. So I did have a kind of a, I had a sense of what the book was going to be about. And this just kind of doubled down and wrote it in such a beautiful way. So here we go. Dear Ms. Waters, you may or may not remember me. We met last year via Zoom at the 2020 Toronto Writing Workshop, where I pitched my novel, Sunshine Nails. You had asked to see the full manuscript, but after giving my novel one more read, I felt it wasn't quite ready yet. I have spent the past year 
fine-tuning my novel and feel that it is now 100% ready for your eyes. To refresh your memory, Sunshine Nails is an upmarket fiction that leans literary, told through multiple points of view, and complete at 87,000 words. Think Kim's convenience meets little fires everywhere. Here's the story. Debbie and Phil Tran are Vietnamese boat refugees who have made a good life for themselves in Toronto. They run a no-frills nail salon that has a solid four stars on Yelp. They put their two children through college and have even sponsored a niece from Vietnam. There's just one thing. A new nail salon is opening down the street. Not just any salon, a Silicon Valley-backed salon that is touted as being the, quote, Starbucks of nails, end quote. To make matters worse, their landlord just jacked up the rent of the salon, and it's way more than they can afford. The trans are terrified of losing their business and everything they built in Canada. Desperate to keep their salon alive, the trans enlist the help of their adult children. Relationships are put to the test as the line between right and wrong gets blurred. Debbie and Phil must choose. Do they keep their family intact or fight for their salon? I'm a freelance journalist and copywriter in Toronto. My nonfiction work has appeared in Wired, Mary Claire, and Washington Post. I've been nominated for a National Magazine Award twice and have completed an intensive writing mentorship with Anne Y.K. Choi, author of Kay's Lucky Coin Variety, a finalist for the Toronto Book Awards. I wanted to find a story that fit my lived experience as a child of Vietnamese nail salon workers. That story didn't exist, so I wrote it. Should you still be interested, please find my attached full manuscript. Bess, my Nguyen. Wonderful, Carly. Thank you. Okay, take us through this. All right. I mean, what's not to love, everybody? Okay, so first of all, I want to give you just the word count. So I'm just scrolling here. So this is 361 words. So remember how I said before earlier in the show, 300 is the goal, right? So this is way closer. This is 361. I think so this one has one, two, three, four. It technically has about five paragraphs. One of them is just kind of explaining the the lived experience bit. So I kind of I, I count that as kind of like part of the author bio. So there's like three paragraphs at the top, author bio, and then the lived experience. So yeah, I mean, gosh, what's working here? So number one, I really did love this pitch when it was pitched to me live. And I literally spent a year from 2020 to 2021 waiting for the day that this was going to drop in my inbox. And I also pulled up my pitch letter for you guys so I could kind of explain what it is about the book that I actually liked and and what I was excited to share with editors. So what I boiled it down to in terms of one of my, this is more of a a themes uh, paragraph. I know I always tell you guys not to use themes, but I sometimes get to use themes. So my themes, my themes paragraph was Sunshine Nails is a lighthearted, urgent fable of gentrification with a cast of memorable and complex characters who showcase the diversity of immigrant experiences and community resiliency. That's what I love about this book. It does so much. It's very plot forward. My most favorite thing about this book is how plot forward it is, right? We have we have a David and Goliath story, right? Like we have the mom and pop shop. We have the Starbucks of nails, wherever you are, in whatever city you're in. I think you can probably picture what the Starbucks of nails looks like in your city. And yeah, the mom and pop shop right across the street. It's about family, right? It's about like what you would do for your family not only financially, but in terms of legacy and and what you leave behind. And again, so, so much going on here. And there's so many things not in this query letter that I also want to tell you guys about. There is, so I wrote in my pitch, desperate to keep the salon alive, the trans devise a series of ill-conceived plans with stalking, blackmailing, gambling. It's all on the table if that's what it takes. So 
there's just so much actual like meatiness that's actually happening in this book once you read it. But in terms of the actual pitch itself, uh, the title, a really gripping. So this, I don't know if you guys remember, but there was, I can't remember what year it is. It might've been around 2019. There was a big expose about the nail salon industry in New York. I think it was New York Times that probably put out that article or Washington Post that kind of just like opened everybody's eyes to like what was happening. And, and I think my really felt like, you know, my, my author, M-A-I, my, she really felt like she wanted to tell the story of her family, you know, and, and they had a, a nail salon and and just show the humanity behind it that sometimes gets lost in, in some of that kind of investigative reporting, but also how complex gentrification is. And there's just so many, so many wonderful, rich, rich layers to this book. So it's very very plot forward. So the comps, similar comps that I used in my pitch. So Kim's Convenience, I also use this comp. I also use Halsey Street as a comp. And ultimately, which I'm really excited for you guys to see the cover soon. We're going to do the cover reveal really soon. It has a very like Kevin Kwan type of cover. Also kind of like Olga Dye's Dreaming cover, a little bit of like Lessons in Chemistry type cover. So it's like very like upmarket, smart, fun, fast paced. The cover is like really bright and eye catching. And I, I can't wait for you guys to see it. So the word count, we're at 87,000 words, perfect for upmarket fiction. And yeah, this pitch does a lot of things right, which I'm sure you guys can connect with as well. Wonderful, Carly. Thank you. Okay, Cece, let's go to yours now. It's slightly different. Everybody brace themselves because it's long. <laughs> I'll just jump in there, Cece. So when you say it's long, this is very intriguing. For our listeners, we get a really long query and we're saying, don't write the long queries. And then Cece gets it and she represents it. So let's hear this, Cece. I will read it and then I will explain why. May 26, 2021. Dear Cecilia, given your interest in psychology, I am submitting my book titled, I Didn't Sign Up For This, Conquering Resentment in Your Marriage for Your Consideration. I Didn't Sign Up For This is a self-help book that provides the reader with strategies to identify the true source of their resentment and ultimately guide themselves through ways to break the cycle through inward connection and building a healthy relationship with their partner. This book will appeal to readers who are feeling dissatisfied in their relationship and don't know how to make a change and appreciate similar books like The Seven Principles for Making Marriage Work by Dr. John Gottman, Hold Me Tight by Dr. Sue Johnson, and Fair Play by Eve Rotsky, all of which do not specifically address the experience and psychological and relational complexity of resentment. Comparable to Jan Stunt's How Not to Divorce Your Husband, I Didn't Sign Up for This is written with my clinical expertise, while also creating a genuine connection with the reader by breaking down the clinical facade to reveal that even the clinician can find herself resenting her husband after having children. Contrary to the popular thought that psychologists and experts are immune from these difficult feelings and struggles. While spending her career studying relationships and helping women and couples cope with their resentment, psychologist Tracy Doglish didn't think she would end up crying in her shower every Saturday morning, resenting her husband and losing her own identity. She was left questioning, how did I get here? Like so many women had previously questioned sitting in her therapy office. Wishing her partner wasn't around or fantasizing about a life without them, women find themselves struggling to connect with their partner. Once a satisfying relationship, they are now having the same argument over and over again, leaving sex and intimacy the furthest thing on their mind. The relationship feels different, an added level of complexity she didn't sign up for. 
Resentment shows up and leaves her questioning how she got here, why her partner couldn't just change, and what she needs to do to get rid of this toxic emotion that is slowly eroding away the health of their relationship. Continuing to silence her feelings and needs, ignoring the warning signs, she ultimately finds feelings of shame and dissatisfaction in her relationship. I Didn't Sign Up For This combines tools from therapy and research, clinical knowledge, and real-life experiences with resentment in marriage to empower women to bring up hard topics with their partner, solve everyday problems, and build an intimate, trusting, and secure relationship. Tracy Doglish teaches women to identify their own patterns and early childhood experiences that contributes to the buildup of resentment in their relationships. This book provides the reader with communication strategies aimed at stopping repeat arguments, sharing their feelings and needs, setting boundaries, improving their intimacy, and changing the mental load. In the end, I didn't sign up for this will leave the reader with specific tools to prevent the buildup of this toxic emotion for the future. I am a psychologist with over 15 years experience working with women and couples. I help empower others to improve their communication and build strong and healthy connections with themselves and their relationships through therapy, wellness seminars, and my work outside the therapy room. I have written and contributed to blog popular blog and media sites, including Motherly, Huffington Post, Psych Central, Circle Around, and Bustle, and published several journal articles in high-ranking academic peer-reviewed journals. I co-authored two book chapters on attachment theory and emotionally focused couples therapy. My work in academia is regularly cited by other professionals in the mental health field. I have also made television appearances Speaking on topics of mental health and relationships, in 2019, I opened Integrated Wellness, a mental health clinic in Ottawa, and I am the 2021 recipient of the 40 Under 40 Award, recognizing my significant business contribution in the National Capital Region. My mission is to provide accessible resources to individuals that I would not be able to reach within my therapy office. I do this through my online community of 61,000 followers on Instagram, at Dr. Tracy D, 90,000 downloads on my podcast, I'm Not Your Shrink, and through my sought-after speaking engagements at conferences, GEM Conference, and online summits, the Nourishing Mom Summit, You Are Not Alone Parenting Summit. I also reach my community through webinars and a monthly membership, Be Connected, with over 800 digital products sold aimed at improving women's romantic relationships. In addition, I have run several free masterclasses with registrations of over 1,500 people for a masterclass titled Conquering Resentment. I am a mother to two young children and believe that becoming a mother has been the hardest thing I've ever done while also being a role that has strengthened my ability to connect with my clients. My hope is to provide self-help books that are easily digestible and relatable for women and couples wishing to improve their overall well-being and relationships. Your desire for following your love of writing by leaving a career in law and honoring your inner truth is what draws me to work with you. I enjoy learning from you on the podcast, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing, and your webinar, From Memories to Memoir, left me feeling more inspired to tell my story. I look forward to hearing from you and appreciate your time and consideration. Sincerely, Tracy. Awesome, Cece. Okay, so we I think we can all agree that it's not her brevity that you fell in love with. So take us through what it was about this query, even though that it's kind of imperfect in terms of how long it is, what you fell in love with here. 
have to say, I don't think I have a single client who understands the power of brevity when it's time to explain their own work. And that's okay because it's really hard. You know, I want brevity or at least, you know, an ability to write tight sentences when you write the pages. The query letter is fine. I know it's controversial to say so, but if you can hook me, you can hook me. Okay. There are many things that are technically like if you're looking at the rules wrong with this and the length is one of them. There's also a lot of unnecessary detail. Let's just be honest. I heard, I think, three lines that could have been condensed into three words. And and Tracy knows this, by the way. She knows I'm reading this, this letter. She knows that it's super long. I think at the heart of why it works is a few things. One, I already knew her Instagram page. She did take my Memories to Memoir course. And so I looked her up and I really, really liked her Instagram account. I really liked her content. The query letter mentions she has 60,000 followers. I don't know what we're at now, but it's over 100. Her her following is growing really fast because the kind of content she put out really speaks to people. It speaks to people who, yes, are married and yes, have children, but also people who perhaps are not in this situation. It's so much about it is self-improvement and self-awareness and just living your true authentic self while following your values, but at the same time, standing up for yourself. And that's very empowering. So yes, let's not lie. This is nonfiction. Platform matters and her platform's awesome. Another thing that I think is working really well is she is speaking to an agent who is obsessed with psychology books. Like I am obsessed with psychology books. It is by far my favorite field in nonfiction. And I had not just read, but sort of like recently-ish read Maybe You Should Talk to Someone by Lori Gottlieb. And one thing that I really loved about this book is that she shared, yes, client stories, but also her own story. And she, Lori, was not afraid to go there in terms of the vulnerability. And an advantage of Tracy perhaps going on for a little longer than she should is that she showed me that she was going to talk about her own marriage. She was going to talk about all the struggles that she was going through, all the hard times. She was going to be vulnerable. It is very hard for a querying author to convey vulnerability in their own story in a memoir. Most people without realizing, at least in people I get queries for, they almost project this aura of PR. And she is doing this, look at how fabulous I am. Look at how glossy my exterior is. I'm so successful because she is. But at the same time, here's my interior. I'm, I'm, I'm messy like everyone else is too. I'm vulnerable. And that was just so amazing. So I also think that Knowing that she writes for publications was really important for me. Knowing that she had attended the the webinar, not because I think my webinar is particularly great. I actually do think it's great, but rather because it shows me that she's taking classes on the subject and she does mention all these things. So yeah, I, I'm obsessed with the subject matter. And I will also say that we worked on this. I don't even know how long we worked on this for. I'm going to guess nine months, maybe a year. And now it's not a resentment book. Yes, resentment's a part of it, but when we pitched it and and the book, when it comes out, it's going to come out next year. It's a book. Yes, it's still called I Didn't Sign Up for This, but the subtitle changed. The subtitle is now Stories of Unlocking Old Patterns and Finding Joy in Our Relationships. I pitched this as, you know, I had a little quirky line in the beginning. First comes love, then comes marriage, then comes unhappiness. And for many couples, it does seem to be that case, you know, like you first, you had this great relationship and then something happened, whether it was having kids or just spending too much time together or something else. And you're just not feeling like the relationship is working. You're feeling like you didn't sign up for this. And so we do explain how she has 15 years of treating couples. And so she's very, she has a huge wait list and there's no way she can get to her whole wait list. So a book is a way for her to, to 
reach more people. And the idea of having this through storytelling is to me at the heart of why this is so gold. We learn through stories. Yes, there's so much about her book that's very clinical in the sense of she'll tell you the proper terms. She'll break them down in an accessible way. But it's the stories that are fun. You finish a chapter and you go, oh my God, I wonder what's going to happen to this couple. And then you read on because you want to find out. And so, yeah, that's the story of Tracy. I'm really lucky to to have her as a client and I'm excited to, for everyone to read her book next year. Wonderful, Cece. Thank you. And thank you to some Carter for suggesting this. We will try and do one or two going forward in the next few months because I do think it is helpful for you all to hear that it doesn't always require perfection for a query letter to do its job. So we sold Sunshine Nails, my Nguyen's debut novel to Atria Books in a six-figure preempt. We are so excited that it's going to be coming out probably late spring, early summer next year. And you will definitely be getting an interview with Mai because she has such an incredible story and she's so talented. Thank you, Carly. Cece, yours doesn't have a pub date yet. Is that correct? Not yet. It comes out next year with Pessy Publishing and we are super excited. But we'll tell you the pub date as soon as we have one. Amazing. Wonderful. Okay, thanks, Carly and Cece. Right, let's go to today's guest. My youngest son starts kindergarten this year. I can't believe it. One of the tricky things, though, about my kids being in French immersion school and me not having French as a language myself is worrying about how we're going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are very lucky, though, to live in Ottawa, which is a bilingual city of a million people. And we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So it's going to be really easy for our kids to pick it up at a young age through school and sports activities. But me, on the other hand, growing up where French class wasn't taken too seriously and we goofed off. I am so sorry, Madame Corrigan. We're going to have to make up the difference. And that is where Rosetta Stone comes in as the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. And it truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. Immersion is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio to audio from native speakers, and then gives you feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. You can really hone those pronunciations, which we know is key to sounding fluent. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program to get because they have been the expert for 30 years and used by millions, thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language learning training online. Of all the apps, it is the best at speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of native speakers. Rosetta Stone has a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent built into the program. So as you practice speaking, you're going to get your feedback on how well you're pronouncing words, other language apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one-month language course. Think about the cost of a one-hour private tutoring session. But with Rosetta Stone, you enjoy a lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. And right now we have a special offer for you guys that is 50% off. That is lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off, a complete steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, 
The shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's visit rosettastone.com slash today. 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today today. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Today's guest is a writer and teacher from Toronto, where she lives with her husband, her two teenage children, a large cat and a tiny dog. A lifetime devotee of Jane Austen and Georgette Heyer, she adores a happily ever after. A Lady's Risk, book one in the Gentleman of London series, is her debut novel. It's my pleasure to welcome Felicity George. Felicity, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure to talk about writing. Yeah, and this is the first time we have a Regency romance author on. So there's a lot that I want to pick your brain on. But for the listeners out there who aren't writing romance or historical fiction, don't worry, we've got a lot of craft that we're going to be unpacking that can be applied across genres. So I just want to give our listeners a bit of an understanding of a lady's risk. So Lady Margaret has devoted herself to taking care of her young siblings and the estate while her half-brother fritters away the family fortune. Upon Edward's death, she learns he has left them destitute and, worst of all, at the mercy of a notorious and cruel rake. Lord Nicholas would much rather be pursuing women for quick sport rather than taking care of a headstrong debutante without any prospects as well as her siblings. But Edward saved his life once and now he owes him a debt. Fortunately, all he has to do is find Maggie a husband and his debt will be paid. There's just one issue. Maggie is nothing like what he'd imagined, and the more time he spends in her company, the more he begins to wonder whether he's met his match. Dun, dun, dun. Okay, let's have a bit of a discussion on genre. What is Regency romance, and what are some of the conventions of the genre? Right. Regency romance is a sort of a subgenre of historical romance. The Regency in the UK was actually from about 1810 till 1820, but Regency romance can be set anywhere during Jane Austen's lifetime. And it definitely harkens back to Jane Austen. She's an influence for all Regency romance writers. But the woman who first started Regency Romance was a British writer writing starting in the 1920s named Georgette Hare. And she took Jane Austen's stories and kind of put a modern spin on it, wrote stories set mostly in the later half of the 18th century until about 1820. And they were wildly popular. They were wildly popular. She was a prolific writer. She wrote clean Regency romance. And she, she was definitely the originator of the genre. So all current Regency romance writers 
owe a, a debt of gratitude to Jane Austen and to Georgette Hare. And those are sort of our base for our books. And you'll see the influences of them in any, any Regency writer. Therefore, there's some very specific genre expectations that readers have. There's certainly things readers want from Regency and which, frankly, they don't get tired of, which I understand because I love it too. Yeah, so, so that's what Regency romance is. And I wrote A Lady's Risk to hearken back to higher and yet still deliver some of the expectations that fans of Julia Quinn and more modern romance writers, fans of Bridgerton, would expect. And in terms of those conventions, so what we see here and, and, and what we saw, you know, perhaps in some of Jane Austen's novels is this immediate strong reaction to the love interest. It's never just like meh, there's never indifference. It's either a strong immediate attraction or instant kind of loathing that has to be worked on throughout the novel. What what else, what other conventions of the jo- of the genre did did you conform to and which ones do you feel like you broke? I feel like in A Lady's Risk, I conform to a lot of the genre expectations. Definitely in book two of the series, which will be coming out next year, I broke a few. It's a little bit more daring. I think Ladies Risk is is a very solid example of the genre, if I do say so myself. It is enemies to lovers trope, which doesn't have to exist in Regency romance. Just like with any romance, you can have any of the tropes, friends to lovers, grumpy sunshine. But I would say enemies to lovers or opposites attract is a very common one in Regency. And that really goes back to Pride and Prejudice, which is probably the most popular of all of and most accessible of all of Jane Austen's novels, the Darcy and Elizabeth. Elizabeth romance has inspired writers for 200 years and counting. We never get tired of it. So in terms of the language, so what are tricks for other writers who are either working in the genre or perhaps are writing historical fiction to to really get the language right? Because you're writing from a third person point of view. There is a narrator. This is not first person, but the language is very much in keeping with what you would expect from the genre. So is it a case of you just read so much of this genre that you're absorbing the way these people speak? How do you approach getting that right without making Making, you know, mistakes. Actually, for me, and I think this is true of any historical fiction writer or any genre in which you write in historical fiction, the more you can access primary sources, the better. Primary sources are my number one resource material because it's not as important. I, I do read history books, but they are less important for writing historical fiction because history books necessarily look back from a modern perspective. Whereas if you're reading primary sources, they're the world in real time. So whatever your era, if you're reading sources from that world at that time, that's the way people viewed what was going on in their world. Similarly, letters and diaries, memoirs, That's the language people used. Also novels written during that time. So I've read a lot of uh, Jane Austen, of course. I've also read a lot of um, Frances Burney, who was Jane Austen's inspiration and arguably the very first Regency romance writer of them all, really the originator of the rom-com. She doesn't get the recognition that she deserves. She's a fantastic writer. And if you study the dialogue of, of those books, wouldn't want to mimic it exactly. I don't think it would be as accessible, but you it's it's like seasoning. You sprinkle a few words in and and I think it, it, the flavor comes out without being uh, over the top or stilted. Yeah, the authenticity is wonderful. So, okay, now we're going to talk general storytelling. So, something that we 
that I look at a lot when I'm dealing with creative writing students is the inciting incident. So you want to show, you know, stasis, you want to show the status quo, how things look, and then there's some disruption to this person's everyday life. And the inciting incident is that first domino that tips all the dominoes over. So the story wouldn't happen without that. So Felicity, in terms of your novel, what do you consider the inciting incident there to be? Right. As with many romance, I believe with this one, the inciting incident is the meet cute. It's it's the moment in which the two characters meet and then they can never unmeet. They can never go back to their lives before they knew this person. The meet cute happens quite quickly, as it should, as an inciting incident, in my opinion, should happen very quickly. And because I write a dual POV, you have status quo for my heroine, um, beginning with her because she's the protagonist for about a thousand words and about a thousand words of my heroes status quo and then and then they meet. Yeah, and something that was interesting here is so that is certainly the inciting incident on the page. But I would argue the real inciting incident is the brother dying and him asking the hero to please look after the family and be their sort of guardian. Now here's the thing for our listeners. Often you can have this inciting incident that is happening before the present day inciting incident. So without the brother dying, he wouldn't have asked Lord Nicholas to please look after the family, which means Lord Nicholas wouldn't have been there in the first place to have the meet cute. Their lives would never have been brought together. But even if you have this inciting incident that happens in the past, that happens off the page, you still have to do what Felicity did here and give us a present day inciting incident that answers the question, why now, why today, why not some other time? So we've almost got two inciting incidents in this instance, one that set everything in motion, and then one that we see on the page. And it is the same kind of inciting incident for both of them, because both characters are there at the same time. But certainly for Lord Nicholas, his inciting incident that happens off the page is when Edwin spoke to him and asked him to please be the guardian of this family. So that's a question we get a lot on the show. Can the inciting incident be something that happened in the past? Yes, it absolutely can be, but we've got to see another inciting incident on the page. Now let's talk key event. So for our listeners, key event is the moment of no return. It's this call to action. It's the moment at which the hero or the heroine cannot turn back and say, meh, I don't feel like it. I think I'm going back to bed, right? So it's this sort of archway through which they pass that forces them into the second act. For you, Felicity, what would that have been in this novel? Right. The second act for my heroine is the moment in which she has to leave her home physically and go into another person's home. She cannot return to her own home. It is let to somebody else. There is no return to her previous life. She must move forward. And and yeah, that happens at about the actual moment of her beginning her new life happens at about 20%. And that is the beginning of act two in the book. Wonderful, which is exactly what you'd expect. So for our listeners, your act one should be about 25, 20 to 25% of the novel. Your act three should be the same. And then act two takes up 50% more or less the middle chunk of that novel. And this is a perfect example of a literally having a key incident, which means the hero cannot just turn around and go back home again. She really literally can't in this instance. In other books, it may be that, you know, somebody finds something out, you know, about their partner or 
the company they're working for, which means that they now cannot unfind that out and they need to pursue it to find out exactly what's going on. So every story will be different, but certainly it's that call to moving forward into the second act, which cannot be turned away from. Now, in terms of your dual POV, with Pride and Prejudice, we don't have necessarily that kind of perspective where we're in Mr. Darcy's head, right? As she actually we- had hops, <laughs> yeah. which we can't do anymore. <laughs> yeah, she jumps from character to character with little uh, segments, but that's, that's old-fashioned writing. Yeah, and this is actually a discussion I was having with someone recently who's trying to write in Omniscient. And I was Mm -hmm. saying, look, in the past, it was much more popular because this is something that these writers did all the time. They did this kind of head hopping, omniscient stuff, and we're not seeing it as much in modern day stories. Having said that, Lessons in Chemistry, which was a huge success in the last year, a very big successful novel, that does omniscient really well as well. But what Felicity does here is in one chapter, we have the third person point of view. We have a scene from Lady Margaret's perspective, and then we'll have something from Lord Nicholas's perspective. What was the choice there to have those two alternating perspectives? And what was gained by that that would have been lost if you had just had Lady Margaret's perspective? When I wrote this book, I tried, this book was actually an exercise. (laughs) I had written another novel previously that I knew needed a lot of work. So I decided to write this book as an exercise in plotting and in character development. And it grew from there. But when I wrote this book, I tried to adhere to what I found to be the genre expectations as much as possible. I said that before. I feel like it it doesn't break rules really at all or conventions. But, you know, I I hope I still kept it quite entertaining (laughs) for all that. So I found that dual POV was most often used in historical romance. That was the reason I did it for this one. I have one protagonist. My protagonist is definitely my heroine. She is the character that I feel my readers will most identify with. And she has the bigger arc. They both have a pretty big arc, but she has the bigger arc. She gets more POV time than Nicholas. But they have mirroring arcs. Their arcs, their wounds mirror each other. Their arcs mirror each other. So their growth happens together. The incidents in which they are together either set them back or set them forward. Both will have a reaction. And I felt that that was quite pertinent to the development of their relationship. And in terms of the scenes in which they are together, how did you decide which character's viewpoint we need to be hearing from first, etc.? How do you decide when you have multiple POV characters, which, you know, scenes have got to be told from one character's perspective when they're both there? Right. So I am a plotter. I plot and plot and plot. And I go through each scene and decide in that scene which character has the biggest change occurring in that scene and to which character's arc was that scene more important and that will be my POV character for that scene and I change it sometimes sometimes I'll I'll plot it and I'll begin writing and I realize that the other character is actually undergoing more so then I then I'll switch yeah so so even if you are plotting you need to pivot depending on what the scene demands so Felicity you Felicity George is actually a pseudonym. Can you tell us about, I actually have two questions. I want to hear about your journey to publication. And also, I would like to know why you decided to use a pseudonym and what advice you have for listeners who are thinking of doing the same. Right. They're a little bit interconnected. My journey to publication, I'm very happy to share in part because I feel like 
if I could do it, anyone can do this. And that is not to sell myself short. I, 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 I mean that because I, I did come at this really quite quickly. And I believe in the method that I used could be applicable to other people. So I wrote a novel at the start of COVID, as many people did, because I was locked down. We were in lockdown and it was something I had always wanted to do. And I have kind of my own inciting incident for what made me decide to begin then, which I don't necessarily need to go into. But I realized that if I was ever going to do it, that was the time. So I sat down and I wrote a novel. And when I finished it, I asked some friends to read it. And then after a few friends had read it, I asked a bigger group of people to read it, people who didn't necessarily know me. And that's where I started to run into some problems. So the novel was set in the 1790s in the UK. And people were asking me, since Bridgerton had just come out, if the novel was anything like Bridgerton. And it wasn't. It wasn't a romance. It was sort of a family saga kind of novel. When I say it was set in the 1790s, it was actually set over a 50-year period, but primarily in the 1790s. But repeatedly, people asked me if it was like Bridgerton. And the other thing was the few people who did say they wanted to read it were, most of them were not finishing it. And I had a writer tell me somebody who was who was had not published had not got beta had had trouble with beta readers too say well if people aren't write, reading it that's just the way beta readers are but that didn't ring true to me <laughs> because I thought no if people aren't reading it it's something with this book because these people have professed to liking this type of book if they're not finishing it it's it's a fault in the book. And so I decided to set that book aside and listen to what people were saying. Since I, so many people had asked me, is it like Bridgerton? I thought, well, that sort of tells me that people want something like Bridgerton. And so I decided to write something like Bridgerton. And while I was at it, I decided to really focus on plot structure and character development and make it sort of, like I said before, an exercise in those two things and just make it as perfect an example as I could of that genre of a structured novel with, with strong character arcs and well-developed character arcs. And, and so that, that's what I produced. And when I finished it, like many writers, I was still doubting myself, but I didn't have the problem with beta readers anymore. People were asking for the book. They loved the book. Every beta reader I gave it to finished the book. <laughs> Every beta reader came back. I'm excited about these characters. So that told me that, that there was something different. And I decided to query it. And on the advice of uh, the woman I consider my mentor, whose name is Susie Vidori, a fellow Canadian and author, accelerator, book coach, she, had, she advised me to query it in a very, very small batch. And I did 10, I think. And I had fulls, partials, one or two form rejections, mostly fulls and partials, two offers of publication. Actually, the the offer of publication I decided to accept, I still had fulls out to the agents. No agent had yet offered. So at that point, I went back to my agent, the agents with the fulls, and asked if they wanted to represent me. Again, on the advice of my mentor, even with the publication offer, she advised that I get an agent, which I've been very, very happy with that decision. Wow, that's that's quite a journey. And the thing that really stands out there is 
you know, someone who's a writer who hasn't published and is saying, well, that's beta readers for you. And I dare say this is why this person is not published, because what is the point of sending things out to beta readers if you are not going to listen to that feedback? I firmly believe in outliers. You can have 15 people loving the book and there'll be one person who's like me and then the book just wasn't for them. But if beta readers are consistently coming back saying the same things or not finishing your work or skimming at certain parts, then there's a reason for that. So I'm so glad that you listened to that and listened to what people were wanting because this is how we find out where the the needs are in the marketplace. This is how we establish trends when a whole bunch of people are like, is it like Bridgerton? If it is, I really want to read it. And then you go, oh, okay, so, so this is what people want. So absolutely love that story. And then just in terms of the uh, pseudonym, Right. Yes. <laughs> Forgot about that. So my real name is Elizabeth, Elizabeth Welke, and I uh, intended to publish my first novel that I keep talking about, which was sort of women's fiction or under my real name. And I still have the hope of, I have so many novel ideas. I have, I, I don't intend always to write romance. While I will always write historical, I have other genres I want to delve into. And I felt that it might be better to use different names for different genres that I do. And if I ever write women's fiction, then I'll use my own name. I've already reserved that for that. But Felicity George is my Georgian romance writer persona. I don't hide my pseudonym or my real name. I should say I don't hide my real name. It's in there. It's uh, The copyright is in my real name. My real name is on, on my social medias as well as Felicity George. But yes, that was the reason. I'd like to have distinct genres. And because romance is such a very, very specific genre, I wouldn't want to confuse readers later on if I produce something that's quite different from romance. I don't want to use the same name for that reason. Makes complete sense. Well, Elizabeth writing as Felicity, it has been so wonderful chatting with you. Our time is up. I don't know how it just flew by. For our listeners, we're going to put the book on our bookshop.org affiliate page. You can buy it there and support a local indie as well as the podcast. And uh, Elizabeth, we look forward to seeing what you do next, whatever genre it may be, and wish you much, much success with this one. Thank you so much, Bianca. It was a pleasure to be here. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Great news! The Beta Reader matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. 
This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live, cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at Agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A Agent. I hope to see you there. Great news! The Beta Reader Matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March, with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April Fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live, cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at Agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A Agent. I hope to see you there.